O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth an apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode here at the Forward in Faith North America podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the idea of thrones and bishops. So, as always, I'm here with Adam and I'm Daryl. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that, or you can just follow along if you're in your car, and I'll do my best not to jump too quickly from one passage to the next. But we have this concept as American Christians. I would imagine most of us listening right now are from the United States. North America, probably, I'd say. Probably, probably. If you're outside of North America, well, here's a cultural experience for you, <laughs> if you would like. Um, but we tend to think of our life and service to the Lord in a very individualistic way outside of the unity of the church. And that has not been the case amongst the people of God since the people of God could rightly be called and constituted the people of God. And the concept of a throne or a chair speaks to that. Someone sitting in authority and speaking with authority. So, for example, you know, we know that the rabbis in the time of the Lord Jesus, they would teach while they sat, which is one of the reasons in Matthew's gospel, our Lord is often sitting when he is teaching. So when you get into Matthew chapter 23, we have these words from the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat. What is that? Well, it's a reference to being in a kind of succession, a mosaic succession, if you will where the Pharisees and the scribes, through a kind of lay ordination, because they would lay their hands upon the people and pray over them who were being set into those offices, would sit as the teachers of Israel. And this is different from the Levitical ordination, which came through birth and some of the other practices from Moses' law for the Levites and the sacrificial system. This is different. They sit in Moses' seat as the teachers of the law. It's significant that Jesus does not undermine that authority because he says, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. So he's saying what they teach you to obey is good for you to obey, but don't be like them because they're hypocrites. So there's a principle there about authority. And the corollary idea between authority and sitting, a throne. Throne is a picture that's used in the book of Psalms. So we have in Psalm 122, verse 5, For thrones 
sat there for judgment, thrones over the house of David. What's going on in this psalm? Well, the psalm is one of the songs of ascent, and it's when they're going up to the house of the Lord to stand in the courts of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a city that is at peace where the tribes of the Lord are because the tribes that are gathered in Israel are under the authority of David and the thrones that are part of David's house, which would mean then David's throne and then the other thrones that are with him for the sake of judgment, for justice, for reigning. When you parallel the concept of David's throne, and we know our Lord Jesus received the throne of his father David in the words of uh, the archangel Gabriel there in Luke's gospel, Gabriel says to, to the Blessed Virgin Mary that her son, our Lord, would inherit the throne of his father David and that his kingdom would be forever. Throne, again, paralleled with a seat. One of the words that's used here uh, is the idea of throne, like a literal monarch or king's throne, and another is a, a seat, as in a chair that you would sit in. And what ends up happening in those Old Testament images and this uh, transition time here in Matthew's gospel with the Pharisees and the scribes is that those two images are put together in meaning while they retain um, distinct aspects. So the Lord says to the apostles that they will sit on thrones with him in the kingdom. He says this both in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, that they will sit on, the, on thrones judging Israel. Well, when does that happen? But before we jump into that side of it, where, where, let, me, let me give you the scripture references. The first is in, in Luke at the Last Supper, where the Lord says that you will sit on 12 thrones. This is what he says to the apostles. So they're going to sit there with him, judging the 12 tribes. Matthew 19, 28 is the next one. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I've already mentioned Luke passage, Luke twenty two thirty. if you want the exact reference. But here they're put together. The throne is for sitting, and that is both in a, in a reigning monarchy kind of sense, a ruling sense, and, um, and it's also a teaching sense. So it's a teaching office that he's giving to the apostles, and they will reign by teaching. They will reign by uh, giving legislative decision from their, their seats, and um, they're sitting when they do it. They're not standing, so it's not their work that is the basis. It's the work of Jesus. And we see then, uh, lastly, as a, as a, as a matter of, of Scripture reference, in the Revelation, that the elders of heaven that are around the throne of God are seated on their own particular thrones. And they're sitting on thrones around God's throne. Here we are now with this biblical picture of chairs and thrones and the way that the two ideas are blended together. And when we look at the Revelation passage, these 24 elders fall off their thrones. They come off their thrones in a, in a, in a posture of worship and intercessory prayer. 
So now that takes in the third form here, which is priestly. So the, the, the use of the throne and the chair has a kingly, a priestly, and a, a um, teaching office. Now, there are some who would want to take the teaching office and, and make it a corollary to the prophetic office, you know, to parallel Christ as, as king, prophet, and priest. And I think there's a measure to do that because the apostles are, their teaching is teaching in the pages of the New Testament that comes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when you study the New Testament, it does make a delineation between teaching and prophecy. They're two different charisms of the Spirit. But oftentimes you'll see Peter in Acts uh, all the way through the first half of, of Acts, which is detailing many of the accounts about him, and then those, that transition period with Paul, how often they will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they'll, they'll teach or do some decisive act, and Luke uh, will call it, even if that thing they're doing is prophesying, he'll call it a teaching. Uh, I can give you examples from that, but I would go back and just look quickly at Acts 2, and then again at Acts 13, and you can see the parallel of what's taking place. And there's many other places there. When the apostles sit on these thrones, another image, another picture, and I, and I hate to be blending so many metaphors here, but it's to kind of get us up to speed to establish a, a base, a foundation, is the use of the keys of the kingdom. So when Christ gives Peter the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose in Matthew 16, 18, he then in Matthew 18, 18, gives that authority to the other 11 so that they operate in a conciliar manner, which is what we do as Anglicans. We have our conciliar magisterial authority. And that word uh, magisterial would be teaching, the teaching office. It's an authoritative, not infallible, but nonetheless an authoritative teaching office that is given to the apostles. Does that make sense, or am I uh, jumping too far ahead there? No, I think you're, you're, you're making your point here. Okay. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of imagery. Th these ideas are drawing from several perspectives to bring out the multifaceted function of a bishop. That's where I was going. Yes. <laughs> Is when we talk about the word cathedra, that's a chair that's also a throne. And a cathedra is where the that particular chair, when it was set in a basilica, because the word for uh, kingdom in Greek, basilalia, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, you have to forgive my Appalachian slavification sometimes. <laughs> but the, the, uh, that kingdom building, if you will, the basilica is where the cathedra was, at the bishop's chair, and that was uh, language that was used for a while in the church and still is in some places. In other places, the cathedra is in the cathedral. So the, that the cathedral is where the bishop's chair is because it's from that chair that he sits and he teaches authoritatively. And because he sits in that chair, he teaches authoritatively. And he also is the uh, principal priest is the lead priest. He's the high priest to use Old Testament imagery for his diocese. 
So all of those images are converging on the cathedra, on the throne that the bishop has. And that throne that the bishop has participates sacramentally with the throne that's in heaven, that the elders are, are seated on the round throne of God. It participates sacramentally with the thrones of the apostles that Jesus says that they will sit upon while they're judging the 12 tribes, which again, that reference to judgment is not restricted to an Old Testament type and shadow of monarchy in the sense of, um, you know, you're bringing your, your complaint with your neighbor to the apostles to be judged in the same way that you would have appealed to one of David's sons or to David himself to give you justice. That's part of it. That's where the, the five major patriarchates come from, is that who was the last recourse in a, in a, uh, a court of appeals, if you will, in the ancient church. And there were five churches you could appeal to based upon you, you, where you were at. And again, it's more complicated than that, obviously, and for the sake of brevity. Uh, I want to, let's focus on cathedral. The use of, of chairs for bishops and the role of the cathedral for a diocese is very significant. And, I, and I, when I think about what we are experiencing in our Anglican renewal in America, um, to kind of connect with some of the stuff that Bishop Ackerman was talking about last week, there are certain phrases, terms, and ideas that have to be reinserted or reappropriated to our experience in our daily activities. And when our bishops are not enthroned, when there's something else, we have to remember what the scriptural imagery is so we don't make a mistake. So one of the things that ends up taking place when we remove the concept of cathedral and cathedra, the idea of a bishop being enthroned, is that what, what and, I, and, and you know, one can come before the other here, so they're not necessarily in order, but the concept of jurisdiction starts to go away. The bishop becomes a kind of figurehead and not the successor to the apostles. And then they, by default, by extension, by not being successor to the apostles, they're not retaining the authority that Christ has given to them to shepherd the church in his place. And when that can't happen, or when that happens in a diminished way, one of the effects is that the body doesn't grow, it doesn't materialize, it doesn't advance in the way that she should. The church ends up becoming stymied because it's bigger. This principle is bigger than the idea of a chair for the bishop. But the symbolism that is there is a biblical perspective. It's a biblical image that goes back to the earliest days of the New Testament. It goes back far, far back. I'd recommend looking at uh, Gregory Dick's, uh, Dom Gregory Dix's Shape of the Liturgy for all of the things that are in it that people like to point out that he's not exactly right about. When he goes in, in the early pages of the book and starts explaining the arrangement and layout of early, early liturgical practice for the church before the church is legally able to meet, there's already a seat for the bishop. There's already a chair. There's already a cathedra because the bishops aren't sitting in Moses's seat. They're sitting in the seat of the apostles. If the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting in the seat of Moses in a mosaic succession, the bishops sit in the seats of the apostles in the apostolic succession. And in the same way, 
that Jesus commanded the Jews in Matthew 23 to obey the scribes and Pharisees, so he also, by extension and implication of giving the apostles thrones, expects the church to obey the apostles. And the apostles are not a dead voice, they are a living voice through their written records, i.e. the scripture, as that scripture is mediated to us through the bishops. Scriptures uh, being over the bishops, the bishops being subject to it, that's one of our Anglican distinctives. Uh, But nonetheless, it is a mediated authority that comes to us through the sacred tradition. And the cathedral and the cathedra and the bishop being seated speaks to his jurisdictional authority that he has been given by Christ. And I think we have to camp in that idea for a little bit, especially for coming from, you know, low church, evangelical, American, uh, independent background, Christian tradition. If, that, if that's where we're coming from, we've really got to reflect on what it is that we're moving into as part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I think this is uh, very practically, we see it happening, is confirmation. The, like, the, the sacrament. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Bishop sitting in his seat. Mm-hmm. Right. Like th- there's, there's um, a lot of imagery there that is very much so realized, you know, for, for me as, you know, as a veteran understanding that idea of authority, like that makes, that makes sense. Um, but even realizing that I'm going to have a new CEO here in a little bit, this CEO, this CEO, but it's that office and that chair. So when we're, we're sitting down, and you know you kneel before the the bishop. Yes, to that bishop because he's in that chair, or he's on that throne. Also to that office, and that's that's very much so uh, realized. And I think that's one of the the powerful imageries of confirmation is that you you're kind of forced to to think about that, or you should be thinking about that in your preparation for confirmation. Yeah, yeah. Um- because the sacraments and the liturgy of the church are making visible the glory of God. They're making the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word is becoming visible through the liturgy. That's when he's manifesting his glory now, because the liturgy is a people doing what he said to do, in part. Um, the other thing that is, is a very priestly corollary here with the idea of thrones is that when, in Luke's gospel there in chapter 22, when he when Jesus tells the apostles they're going to sit on thrones, he gives a direct relation between their sitting on thrones and the Eucharist. He says, um, verse 28, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. So there's persecution. And I, bes- and I bestow upon you a kingdom. There's that basilica, basilalia idea. Just as my father bestowed upon me one, one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there the eating and drinking and the kingdom is a reference to the Eucharist because that's what he's just finished. Uh, he's just institu- instituted the Eucharist a few service, a few service, <laughs> a few verses above, and he goes on to talk about how they need to persevere and what it is to be a servant. And we could talk about those other themes that are here too, but the, the, the binding together from the words of Jesus between the throne of the apostles, their need for uh, 
servant virtue, their need for virtue, and the Eucharist are so intertwined, they can't be separated. So when you come forward to Ignatius of Antioch, who uh, was the bishop in Antioch in the mid-60s, right around AD 67, who had been discipled by the apostles, and according to tradition is one of the children that Jesus picks up in his arms and blesses, Ignatius in his seven letters, he says that any Eucharist not under the authority of the bishop or the one whom he appoints is invalid. And it's Ignatius who says that the church is the medicine of immortality. It's Ignatius who says uh, that the church, wherever the bishop is, there the church should be. Because wherever uh, Jesus is, that, that's where the, the Catholic church is. He's the first one to use the word Catholicos, Catholic, according to the whole. Our Lord ties together the Eucharist, the kingdom, and the thrones of the apostles. Or to use the, the theological language, the Eucharist, the apostolic succession, and the, the bishop's chair, um, uh, the kingdom. All of those things are so connected together. It's, it's like, a, like somebody playing the piano that you hit a key and there's a, there's a sound. But a key and a note, you know, so a key and, and three keys to make a note, they're not the same, right? I mean, when you think about that, when you hit a note, it's all three of those keys giving a sound at the same time so that you can't, in a real way, parse them out one from the other because it's creating something distinct. The Lord binds these together so that if we're going to rightly honor the Eucharist, if we're going to rightly participate in the fullness of the kingdom, then we're going to need the throne of the apostles. We're going to need the bishop's seat. And then there's other um, parallel ideas that we can attach to that. The expectations of the bishops, i.e., you know, who is the greatest among you, but the one who serves, right? Um, And being with Jesus in his suffering and in his trials, and not being the betrayer Judas, but, you know, encouraging the brother, the bro- your brother, even if you stumble, like Simon Peter, all of that's packed into these points, praying with Jesus in the garden while he's sweating blood, that participation, even in his high priestly intercession, that they uh, do a woeful job of sharing in, in the gospel account, but we see that they, they start to do in Acts and other portions of the New Testament. But the principle of the throne, the principle of the bishop's chair, we, we do a disservice to ourselves when we ignore and we neglect the form that's been given to us, Be- especially because when we treat it as a, a matter of history, quote, quote, which means something that we can leverage for pragmatic purposes or we can dismiss because we find it to be too religious. And both of those errors fail to understand the sacramental complexity of participation that there's a participation in grace and in realities, those divine realities. So, um, rectors, mission directors, do you have a chair or your bishop when he comes? Uh, Does the diocese have a cathedral? Is there a chair there for the bishop? These are things for us to think about, especially in the process of our Anglican renewal and alignment, because, again, Let's go back and redig some of these ancient wells. Let's look at the old terms. Let's look at the, the old forms and perceive just how much of scriptural teaching and precedent is being preserved by keeping them and not in our well-intentioned reductionism.
And I think a lot of this symbolism also says, well, why, why are, I guess, we different than a lot of the modern innovation? So in a world where a presbytery-led or a congregationally-led church government system is very popular, and American, really just Americans, they like that because it, it, it resonates with our, our government structure. American, like, you can't tell me what to do. I should have a voice. It's very antithetical to many things that we do as Americans. And doubling down and realizing our, not just our hair, like what was handed to us, mm-hmm. like fr- from the beginning, from Jesus. It means it doesn't matter if it hurts your feelings. It doesn't matter if it's, if it jades you and rubs you the wrong way. If it's handed to us, especially by Jesus, it is meant to be preserved and it is worth preserving. Right. Because it is a system that is not temporary, but it is a system in a way of doing things that was established that would last forever. It was, if it was effective and, um, I guess it was worth preserving. Right, because these thrones don't exist in a purely pragmatic way. There is an ontological shape, not to the wood of the chair, but the concept (laughs) of the chair participating in that heavenly reality. And heaven is not egalitarian. Heaven is hierarchy. The whole heavenly arrangement is hierarchical. These 24 elders on thrones around God's throne is hierarchy. And they are at the highest hierarchy when it comes to those elders, at least as it's revealed there in those passages, who fall from their thrones in worship of the Lamb and of God. I mean, uh, the angels are flying around with veiled faces, you know, shouting the, the praise of God. And this is where we need to take into consideration that when we do not preserve when we do not rightly honor and elevate the office of the bishop, it's not simply saying, well, that guy is a Judas. Now, he may be, but we are in principle saying that the throne and the thrones that the Lord established, he did not mean to perpetuate, or he meant to perpetuate them, but the people who filled the office were so corrupt that they destroyed the thing that was in perpetuity established by Jesus. So we need, to, we need to really consider how are we rightly preserving heavenly, heavenly hierarchy to counter the falsity that uh, everything is the same thing. A kind of uh, egalitarian equalism, you know, equality that's not scriptural. We, get, we have this as human, human beings. I mean, just let's restrict it to human people for a moment. You know, everybody is the same when it comes to nature in, in that we are in the image of God as human beings. But each of us in our particular expression, we're all, there's already hierarchy and variation. We see variation and hierarchy in the heavenly arrangement. And Christ has established that he has the throne of David and he has raised that throne into heaven and he sits on the throne of God. He is, the, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The apostles are not the King of kings. They are not the Lord of lords, but they are kings and they are lords. And they are sitting around his throne on thrones that he gave them. And then that, those thrones are 
um, spread out amongst the other bishops in the world participating in that dynamic grace of hierarchy. We see this in Hippolytus's uh, letter, or actually not really his letter, but his treatise on the spiritual gifts, when he delineates and describes how priests were consecrated to become bishops and how now they, through the laying on of hands and the reception of, quote, the princely spirit. So there's that idea of reigning, that princely spirit, so that those who are made bishops don't succeed in a merely temporal way in time or chronological way. They succeed by participating in the reign now. And this was such, this was an idea so powerfully believed by the early church that when Leo wrote his tome, the people at the council gave forth the, the shout and the acclamation that Peter has spoken through Leo. They believed that the successors to the apostles, the bishops, participated in apostolic graces so powerfully that when something so clear was uttered, they perceived it to be the work of that apostle in glory, that, that, that heavenly bishop, if you will, exerting dynamic spiritual power, all of it by grace through Christ, not, not some you know, pagan mediation, but all of it uh, exerting grace through their successor to maintain the truth. And when we treat the cloud of witnesses, the communion of saints, as a distant or an ethereal or an indefinite thing, that is ultimately what we're going to do. We're, we're going to treat it as something that's not engaged with our lives. But when we recognize that the communion of saints, according to Hebrews 12, is legitimately closer to us than our sinful garments that cling to us. It's a fog that we can't escape, so to speak, that we have a, a, a more profound mystical sacramental participation in the communion of saints. That notion is no longer foreign. And I hate to use this example, but it's an awful shame that the contemporary world has to look at the force ghosts in Star Wars to get a concept about the communion of the saints, quote, quote, because the church has done such a poor job of preserving the, the distinction in the New Testament. I mean, even in Romans, when Paul says um, in Romans 14, he says that God is the God of the dead and the living. Think about that. He's not the God of the living and the dead. That's not Paul's order of thinking. He's the God of the dead and of the living because the life that we have is resurrection life that will be materialized at the end when we're raised. So the beginning spot is being, is being dead, dead in sins away from God, but then living because of the gospel. So hierarchy, godly hierarchy that's been prescribed to us by the Lord Jesus and the idea of cathedra, cathedrals, are really important. And my guess is that most of the folks who would be listening to this, to our podcast at this stage of it being released would say, well, duh, of course, that's, that's obviously the case. But remember, our friends, that this is, we are making these for those who will hear later. And the idea of a cathedral, especially if they're new to Anglicanism, new to the Catholic faith, new to coming in, um, even in dioceses that have been, that have been formed that do not preserve these distinctions, they could be buying a bill of goods that's not as rich and as full as it should be. 
And so let's, let's do the good thing. Let's do the well thing of reflecting on the throne, on the cathedra, and not miss this blessing that the Lord has for us. Um, I completely agree. It is important for us to not just learn language and remember language for the sake of learning words. Right. But it is good to, for us to know our language and our terminology because it builds something. It, it is true. Even the, the words and the titles that we have given things or have been given to us are full of richness to help us to remember. Over the next uh, podcast or so, we're going to be kind of going into the function, like how many of these... Yeah, like what's it look like? Well, like right? what, what does it look like? Because these analogies bring richness to the idea and the function of, of, of the... Yeah, we're not, we're not, we're, we're not to saying that the, uh, the cathedral, that the bishop's chair needs to be in a building to collect dust for the sake of having a chair there. That's not, we're not talking about an empty seat. No, no set of a Conte uh, ideas here. No, no vacant seats. That's not the idea. Tune in with us next week as we begin to unpack this a little bit more. Feel free to send in suggestions some comments, or if there's anything you would like to be expounded, feel free to contact us and let us know. Uh, the best way to get a hold of us is through email, and that is daryl at ascensionwv.org, and daryl is spelled D-A-R-R-Y-L. Thank you. Yes. I know. You're not a one-R type of guy. You know, you got, you got two of them in there. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and have a great week. Once again, I'm Father Daryl Fitzwater, and I'm Adam. 